0: You're listening to Creation Talk with your host, Jess Beattie, and special guest, Dr. Mark Harwood.
1: So, Mark, big question. If God is good, then why do bad things happen? It's a big thing we're going to talk about. Christians claim that God is all-powerful, perfectly good, but then we see a world where things don't look like that. We see natural disasters. We see devastating effects of those things we see disease, we see the impacts of that on even, as we would say, innocent children. We see that people commit horrible atrocities against others. If this is the case, it's easy for us to look at the world and, and feel like, well, where is God? And how can a good God
0: exist? Yes, yes. at, at face value, it seems like a, a question that Christians really can't answer. There's this um, apparent conflict. If God is good, why do we live in such a a difficult world where things go wrong and bad stuff happens? But it's interesting, it's often a question that is used by people sceptical of Christianity to dismiss the claims of Christianity or perhaps even try to dismiss the existence of God. But I think that what we need to do is to think about what God has actually told us in his Word. Because in his word, the Bible, he outlines to us the true history of what's happened right from the very beginning. You see, every person has a problem. We've all arrived in the middle of the story. Now, I don't know if you've had the experience of watching a detective program or something and you're partway through and somebody walks in the room and sits down next to you. And then they say, what's going on? Why did he do that? And it gets a bit exasperating, doesn't it? You explain patiently and then they ask another question. I mean, it's hopeless because when you come in the middle of the story, you don't have a reference. You can't understand what's going on or why it's going on. And, you know, we've all come in the middle of the story. So to find out what happened in the past, which has led to where we are today, to understand why the world is the way it is, and to understand something of its future, we need to know the truth about our beginnings and God has given us all of that in his word, the Bible, particularly in the book of Genesis. We, re- we read about the original perfect creation, man's rebellion against God called the fall of man. Understanding that and the consequences of the fall are, I believe, a critical key to understanding why we live in a world that's full of bad stuff, and yet God still shows himself to be a holy, good, perfect, righteous God.
1: It's an interesting perspective to think about. I came in in the middle of the story as well. I've thought about that before. In 2004, Mark, there was a tsunami in the Indian Ocean that took the lives of over 200,000 people. Many look at that and say, well, where's our all-powerful and loving God? As Christians claim, why didn't he prevent or stop the disaster?
0: Yeah, that's a good question, isn't it? Well, once again, let's take a look at what the history book of the universe tells us, God's Word, the Bible. Mm -hmm. So when Adam and Eve rebelled against God, the Bible says that that ushered in sin, suffering, pain, and ultimately death into what was once a perfect creation. So the first thing to grasp is that God in his goodness and power created a world that was not like the world we now live in. Okay. Okay. So we don't live in this, the, the world as it was at the beginning, which I think you could use the word perfect. The Bible describes it as very good. So if God called something very good, I think perfect's a pretty good synonym for it in the English language. Okay. So we, we're not in that world anymore. So this is not the world that God created. That's the first point. Mm. So we live in a, a broken, fallen world.
1: And we all know that. We all experience that all the time. Don't
0: we? don't we? All the time. Uh, we find it in, uh, like the tsunami example that you gave, but many other things too. Catastrophic floods, volcanic eruptions, it's all a matter of things. The Bible also tells us that God judged the whole of the world about 1600 years after the creation with a global catastrophic flood that caused massive geological change on the face of the earth. Totally destroyed the then known world. So we've got no idea what that original creation was really like. We can only imagine based on what we experience here today.
1: Okay, because most of it will have changed so drastically with the flood.
0: Absolutely, absolutely. And we see evidence of that everywhere. In the geological record, for instance, we see evidence of that global watery catastrophe. But that caused things to change on this planet, which are still changing. We still have, for instance, uh, tectonic plates that are moving together, grinding Slowly, at sort of centimetre per year kinds of rates that produce earthquakes and uh, release the Earth's magma in volcanic eruptions and so on. There are disruptions to our weather patterns. Uh, things are not ideal. So what we're experiencing now, I think, are kind of like the um, the aftershocks, if you will, of the global flood. So things are still moving, still settling down. And the flood, by the way, would have been, according to biblical chronology, about four and a half thousand years ago. So, not that long, actually. Um, so that's that's what's happening now. When God created the world, He created it using uh, the laws of physics and principles that reveal to us something about His character. And I think those principles reveal to us that God is a, a God who uh, is consistent, who is faithful. Who uh, is reliable? And these are, are properties that are expressed in uh, in the physical world in which we live. So we live in a cause and effect world. So, well, every effect has to have some some sufficient cause, and uh, and that's in fact the very basis of how science itself works. So God hasn't changed how He created the world. Yeah. He hasn't withdrawn any of um, that uh, that. Brilliant, creative genius, but the world has been cursed because of Adam's sin. So that's why I believe we still experience these kinds of natural disasters. They're a consequence of man's sin, not a consequence of how God made the world.
1: And a really important distinction there—the difference. So, do we then say is God unable to intervene when when these things are happening? Is He a a God that isn't capable? of doing that, when we look at the brokenness and the malfunction, is, is he not able to stand in and actually change things and make them better?
0: Oh, not at all. And in fact, there are many, many occasions where he has miraculously intervened into what would oh. otherwise have been the natural outworking of the laws of physics. And for instance, there are so many um, instances of uh, divine and miraculous healings that do take place. Uh, these things are well documented. And uh, in fact, when Jesus was here, his uh, earthly ministry consisted of, uh, among many other things, but he healed the sick people who came to him. Uh, he healed them. Of course, he taught as well. Mm. But that was, if you like, a, um, an identifying mark of the fact that he was indeed the Son of God in human form, even though he was a man walk, walking on the on the face of this earth. So God does intervene, and he does perform miraculous things, but if everything was fixed up before it went wrong, we could never even recognize that a miracle had taken place. The only way we know that a miracle has happened is because the normal, ordinary, everyday processes that we are familiar with in our world are interrupted by a divine intervention, and that's what we call a miracle. So we still see God's faithfulness, his orderliness, his consistency, his reliability, predictability is all there in the ways in which our universe works. But God in his divine providence reaches in, very often in response to requests and prayers from faithful believers, and changes things. And that's what we call a miracle.
1: And many Christians would probably say they have a testimony in their lives of, of praying and asking God for help in things and, and God actually moving and changing things and doing everything.
0: Absolutely, mm. absolutely. And uh, people who put their confidence and faith in God mm. and safely and confidently request his intervention are many times blessed with just exactly that, but not every time. And therein lies, I suppose, something of a mystery because I guess God is like a, a good parent. A parent will give their child what they need not necessarily what they want so sometimes what God is doing is leading us on a maturing journey Uh, in fact the scriptures say that uh, we will encounter trials and difficulties Mm. and that is for the refining of our faith which is more precious than gold now we sometimes don't see that we just see something uncomfortable painful inconvenient oh God help I don't want to have to go through this Anything to avoid pain. Absolutely. But it might well be that it's better for us to go on that journey to discover God's faithfulness, his presence with us, even through a difficult experience.
1: Reminds me of Job and his experience in the Bible of finally getting to that point of really being able to see God because he'd been through
0: so much. (laughs) Absolutely. Now, Job's an excellent example. So in the book of Job, we read this extraordinary account about a man whom God himself declared to be blameless. He was a faithful man. He sacrificed for his children in the event that they might have blasphemed the name Mm. of God or sinned in some way. He had absolutely no idea why the things that were happening to him were happening. So Job was perplexed. He was bewildered. And he cried out to God, why? Why? He had no idea that there was a heavenly competition, if I could use that term, that Satan had come and challenged God over, God's, uh, over Job's faithfulness. Mm. And he said to God, you know, Job only worships you because you've blessed him. If you take away his blessings, then he'll curse you. And God gave Satan permission to take away the blessings from Job. And in one day, all these possessions were lost and his children were killed. I cannot imagine the the devastation that that would have brought to him. Even his own wife said to him, why don't you just curse God and die? You know, it's beyond my comprehension. And yet Job knew the God that he worshipped. He wasn't committed to a set of principles or a theology. He was in relationship with God, and he knew what God was like, and he did not accuse God of wrongdoing at any stage through the whole of his trials. And I think that's very important. Job's three friends, however, came with him to comfort him. Mm. Uh, very poor comforters they were, as it turns out. From that. <laughs> so and they had a theology and their theology had failed them, which was, of course, if you're good then God will bless you, but if you do evil things then he will bring calamity into your life. And so they saw all this calamity and said, well, Job, you must have sinned grievously. Just repent of your sin and it'll all be fine. But Job knew that that was not the case. And so he would not accuse God of wrongdoing. So his theology failed him, but not his knowledge of God, his relationship with God. I think that's a vital lesson for us today. Because it's not about following principles. Christianity is not a set of rules, regulations, principles. It's not about getting all your theology correct, because nobody does. Mm-hmm. It's about knowing God in a personal way, and that is actually possible to do, which is the message of Christianity.
1: I feel like by the end of that, Job and myself, when I come to a position of being able to recognize I'm the created, not the creator, there's something good in that picture of bringing me back to a place where yes, it doesn't matter if I don't have the answers to some of these things that happen.
0: That's right, because God is sovereign. We've got to remember right back Genesis Genesis 1.1, in the beginning, God created. He spoke this universe into being in just six normal length days, just like the days we experience now. What an awesome and powerful God he is. And what a loving God, because what an amazing, loving creation he made. It's just ideal for us. Even though it's broken, we can see the incredible intricacy of it. Even the way he's made human beings, our bodies are extraordinary, fearfully and wonderfully made. So evidence of God's loving, compassionate nature is everywhere, even though the world is a broken world because of sin. So we can't overlook God's sovereignty I like the analogy of the the potter and the clay you know the the potter makes a particular vase or vessel and we read in uh, in Jeremiah in fact uh, Jeremiah was led by the Lord to go and watch the Potter in his workshop and the Potter makes some vessel it's got a, a floor so he said, that's no good so he breaks it and he starts again and he makes something else and the potter has the right to do that because he's the one who is the creator. He's, he's making this as for his purposes. Now does the, the clay say back to the potter, um, you shouldn't do that, uh, you should make me this way? Grasping the sovereignty of God is very important because it's like a backdrop to all of what we're talking about here today. And it helps us to understand as it did Job In fact, I think that's part of what got him through that whole extraordinary experience. Yes. His knowledge of God in a personal way, his understanding of God as the creator. And in fact, even to the point where Job said, even though he slay me, yet will I trust in him.
1: That's the ultimate.
0: Now, I've never got to that stage in my life. But you see how godly a person Job was. So God's sovereignty is not something that we should ever uh, ignore or not be aware of, but at the same time, He is a loving and compassionate God. So uh, that kind of, if I could bring us back around the natural disaster problem that people say, why didn't God intervene? Now you mentioned the Indian Ocean tsunami. You know, as you said, two hundred or something thousand people died. There were all these opinion pieces in the newspapers at that time. And a number of religious leaders were asked to bring in their opinions. You know, and, the, and the challenge that the secular press laid down was, so Christian, was your God not able to stop this happening, or did he not really care? So the church was presented with a, with a choice, is your God impotent or callous? And that's kind of a bit of a setup, really. Just a little. <laughs> because it's not out of those things. But, you know, what I found sad, I have to say, was that every one of those Christian leaders, or let me say it differently, not one of those Christian leaders went back to the beginning of the story and began with the opening chapters of Genesis, explaining to people who wanted to know the answer Mm -hmm. that God did not create the world in its broken, fallen state. He created a perfect world, but our sin is what has broken it. I think we really fail to grasp the enormity of the consequences of sin. We just gloss over it today. Oh, it's a bit naughty, you know. Why does that matter? But, oh, it mattered enormously because God is a holy and righteous God. And Adam's rebellion against him was—it uh, it had cosmic consequences.
1: Mm. And so would you say that if we don't go from where we are in the middle of the story back to the beginning like you just have... Are you saying that without that Genesis account being true, there's actually no basis for understanding things like natural disasters?
0: I think that's pretty close to the case. Yes, you know, without that understanding, you'd have to conclude that God was either impotent or callous, mm. or perhaps He didn't know what was going on, mm. which would challenge His omniscience or His well, knowingness. Mm. In fact, I think it's probably even worse. It leaves you with with a sense of hopelessness. Mm. So. What kind of god is it that creates a world that has all these dreadful things happening and apparently loves us as human beings but all these disasters happen tsunamis earthquakes volcanic eruptions lots of people die and god looks through and says oh dear what what can i do you know what a terrible thing it's just not like that it's not an all-powerful god then no he's not and sadly many christians try to accommodate the the accepted story of origins, the evolutionary story that our culture believes right. is true, and to integrate that into their understanding of their faith and into their relationship with God. And by the way, I did this for many years. I know what it's like, right? Personal experience. It really yeah. kind of unravels your theology. Because the millions of years always have suffering and death and pain before Adam appears on the scene. Now, that says that God must have created the world with all those bad things in it. So immediately, we challenge God's character. He can't be good Mm -hmm. if he has done that. Or we try and tap dance around it. and We say, oh, maybe our understanding of good is not the same as God's understanding of good. Really? (laughs) I think that's very unconvincing. Anybody who has owned a pet and the pet dies knows that animal death is can be devastating Mm, to people, Absolutely, Uh, not to mention the animal itself and the pain that the the animal would experience in the process. That's not a good God. When we integrate millions of years into our faith, which is what I did, it leaves us with a very confused picture of the goodness of God. But it does worse than that. It also means that we can't fully understand what the Christian gospel is, because why did Jesus die for us. Now, I, I struggled with that as a young man. I Growing up in a Christian home and in the church, I became a Christian when I was just 10. And uh, I just assumed that God must have used evolution to create. And one of the major questions I had was, why did Jesus die for me? I, I couldn't figure it out. Why couldn't he have um, come to the earth, lived a good life? shown us how to relate to our Heavenly Father and then been transfigured up into Heaven. Why the cross? Mm. Why the agony of the cross? I went to the leadership of my church and they couldn't explain it either. I got explanations that were, well, you know, maybe God uh, identifies with us in our suffering uh, through the cross. I thought, really? Does God have to send His Son to suffer such a brutal death just to identify with us? It, it had a It didn't have a ring of truth, and it's not true. Very weak. I mean, it's partly true, right? That is true that he does identify with us. It's not the whole picture. But that's not the whole picture, and certainly it's not the reason. And the Bible makes it very clear. The reason Christ went to the cross was because the first Adam brought death and suffering into the world. Mm. So the last Adam came to pay the price, which was death, the price of our sin, so that, and here's the thing, we could go free how awesome is that now why would anybody want to reject the christian gospel if they only understood it he took on himself all that should have been laid upon us he did it in the most amazing expression of love that this universe has ever seen he left his home in glory and came to this decaying rotten broken earth lived a life as a human being perfectly filled with the Holy Spirit, but a man nonetheless, and suffered a brutal death for our sake. That is an incredible story. And frankly, the fact that bad stuff does happen points to the reality of the gospel message. I'm
1: amazed that these leaders that you went to at that time couldn't bring you to see the big picture to help you understand that.
0: It's tragic, isn't it? But you see, what they had done was capitulate to the evolutionary story. Mm. And why? I I don't really know. Maybe they felt intimidated by the scientific establishment. Mm. I mean, after all, they would say, well, I'm just a a pastor. I'm trained in theology, not science. The scientists tell us that the earth is billions of years old. Uh, These guys know what they're doing. Uh, They make a mistake. They'll perform an experiment. They'll discover the error and fix it up. And Mm. they put men on the moon. We've got these amazing technologies that we enjoy today, Mm. you know, scientists are cluey guys, right? Our culture kind of worships science a bit. It's actually called scientism. (laughs) Mm. But science uh, is is actually limited in what it can do. It's a very human activity. So maybe they were intimidated by the science. Uh, Maybe they had never thought about the issue.
1: Well, I was going to say, do you think they realised, as you've been saying now, the implications are massive if you decide to put death and disease and suffering Before Adam, and as you brought the the gospel message into that, if it has implications for that, are they not thinking through those things to realise that?
0: I I think I I think that's the case. I think they're not. Well, well, my personal experience. So growing up through high school, university, postgraduate studies, um, I just sort of lived in this twilight zone that well, God must have used evolution to create, but I didn't think too much about it. Okay, I had a sneaking suspicion that it might unravel badly on me and I didn't want to uh, put myself in that position. So it was actually after my postgraduate work that the Lord confronted me over the whole issue. But I discovered to my immense delight that not only could I believe that uh, God created the heavens and the earth just like he said he did in Genesis, and by the way I could, because all the evidence that we observe in the world around us actually points to the truth of the Genesis account, but that I should believe it. And I should because it's the very basis of the gospel message. And it helps us understand why God can be a good God and there still be suffering and death and bad stuff in this world around us.
1: I like that you also phrased that as, God confronted you after your postgraduate, because I think also you were obviously open to some extent to him confronting you. Yes. And I think that's really important to point out, that you were open to seeing that maybe you didn't have all the answers there, and that that box you didn't want to quite open, yeah, the evolution box, you were open to him showing you that there's actually truth you haven't seen. and
0: discovered. But isn't that the goodness of God? Absolutely. You see, he reaches out and says, Mark, you need to understand this. <laughs> It was quite transformational for me, mm. which is why I now traveled all over the place speaking about the importance of the opening chapters of the Bible and how the science and all that we observe around us attests to its truth, mm. because it's fundamental to comprehending the gospel, the goodness of God, and why the world is the way it is. Mm. Because, as I said at the beginning, we've come in the middle of the story. You've got no idea what's going on unless you've been at the beginning then God's given us the beginning. Mm -hmm. It's laid it all out there very plainly. It's not ambiguous or difficult to understand, but it is difficult to believe. Difficult to believe because we are so saturated in this evolutionary story of naturalism, how the universe just made itself, and people trying to convince us, we don't need God because the universe got here all by itself through natural processes. But it fails hopelessly when you really dig into those things and test them out.
1: I wonder if that's what some people believe, like thinking about Stephen Fry, who's a well-known atheist, and he, he actually challenged this character of God that we've been talking about, and he's famous for his quote, what about bone cancer in children? We've talked about natural disasters, but if we look at this idea as well, David Attenborough, another person who's famous for asking, how can a God who creates a worm that eats through the eye of a boy in West Africa be a loving God. I wonder if they have also been saturated with this idea that evolution is truth and God couldn't have created a world that is full of this
0: mess. Yes. And, and you know, their position is, of course, uh, a, a belief in the secular worldview, a naturalistic evolutionary that's process, right? That's, that's the given for them. That's where they're coming from. So they're saying well, Christian, if your God even exists, and if he's a good God, then how come? And if I were in their position, I would probably conclude exactly the same. And I think if God uh, was like that, so now thinking in terms of where I used to be as a Christian, but still thinking that evolution was how He created. This question was um, was actually one of the others. So the, the first question I mentioned was, why did Jesus die? But the other one was, why do bad things happen? You see, I couldn't answer either of those. So I, I get it. I see why you're yeah. thinking that. It's a very logical conclusion and a fair challenge. And sadly, not many Christians can actually respond to that challenge very coherently because so many of us do sort of try and dance around the issue. But let's go back to the beginning again and mm. look at what happened. So we have this perfect world and man rebels against God and basically tells God to shove off. I'm going to lead my own life. And so God partly does. And it's like he, he withdrew some of his sustaining power. Now, if we think a minute about that perfect creation, before Adam sinned, he and Eve and all the animals would have lived forever. There was no mechanism for death. Death was not in that original creation. No decay, no breaking. No decay. Now, that's an interesting point, isn't it? That does not mean, by the way, that the second law of thermodynamics, which says that everything left to its own devices will run down and decay and rot and rust and so on. It's uh, an established law. I I think I could use the word immutable. I don't think there's any scientist anywhere that would argue against the second law of thermodynamics. So it's not that the second law commenced at the fall it must have been in operation because adam and eve ate plants and food so all of that was broken down so they could derive energy from their body they could walk so there was friction between their feet and the ground Mm -hmm. so that represents a loss of of energy or order. so the second law was functioning but something else was as well Otherwise, that original creation would have run down, just like ours is now. So something else was happening, and this is why I said earlier, we don't know what that original creation was like. It's beyond our, our experience, of, of, because this world is not like that. So there's something else which is restoring the order that was being lost through the operation of the second law. Now, we get a little bit of a hint Interestingly, when Mm. the children of Israel were wandering in the wilderness, for 40 years, their clothes and their shoes did not wear out. Now, if you were fashion conscious, you'd get a bit bored, I'd expect, after 40 years. But so something was going on, which we don't see happening today. It was God's miraculous provision for those people. So maybe whatever that was, was happening before the fall. So at the fall, God withdraws some of his sustaining power. So now the second law wins, and the net effect is that everything's running down. Death wins, disease and suffering. So things break, things go wrong. Mechanisms which would have had a beneficial purpose before the fall can now become in some way harmful or deleterious towards us. We can have um, biological systems failing and then becoming lethal, so it's possible that we uh, have diseases uh, occurring which would not have been present in the original creation. So all of creation is now subject to decay. We read about that in Romans chapter eight. It says yeah. the whole of creation is in bondage, and science attests to that. It's, right. As I said, it's it's the uh, the second law. It's so, but these malfunctions are occurring, and. So now life is limited and everyone is ultimately going to die. Unless, of course, Jesus returns beforehand. But I think everybody experiences this kind of thing in their life. We all have uh, things occur which uh, are very difficult. A loved one dies from a disease, cancer or something. In fact, my own experience has been that our eldest son passed away from cancer at age 42 leaving behind a wife and three young children. You know, we had all the why questions. Uh, He had a brilliant career. He was contributing effectively in um, uh, a field that was providing crisis support for people in need. So here is a young man contributing positively into the life of the community, a believer, a strong Christian, 42 years old. And we had to walk that journey, and it was a very difficult journey to walk. More so, of course, for his wife and his three children, but as his parents, my wife and I also went through a dark time. But did we see God's hand in the process? Well, yes, we did. We saw many blessings flow from that, and and let me share just a couple with you. This happened, uh, he was first diagnosed at the end of, uh, of 2020, And everybody knows 2020 was the year of COVID and the lockdowns were occurring and Mm. there was a bit of a gap, a lull, if you like, at the end of 2020 to the beginning of 21. Our son and his wife had embarked upon a major renovation of their house. Mm. So they had to move in with us. So they lived with us from the beginning of 21, right up until he actually passed away five months later. Now, the lockdowns began again. Can you imagine what it would have been like? We could not even have left home to have travelled into his area, which was outside of our allowable mm. zone, to be with them, to support them, to encourage them. They were in the house with us. We walked the journey with them day by day. We could support them and, frankly, them us, and we could support our grandchildren through it. I'm I, I think-
1: missing out on that.
0: That was, we would have, it would have been so much worse. So we see God's provision in that. Mm. We see answers to prayer in lots of different ways through the whole of that. The big answer we wanted, we didn't get. But when I said he wasn't healed, I believe he is, (laughs) (laughs) because our son was a believer. We had raised all four of our children with the solid grounding and knowledge that the Bible is God's word, that is true. We told them all about the beginning of the story. They knew that there was a perfect creation. They knew that it was our rebellion that brought suffering and death into the world. They knew why the world was broken. They knew why Jesus had died for them. They knew that there was an eternal destiny for them and they were believers. So I know, and it's not wishful thinking, it's a hope, that is a certainty, that I will see Christopher again. And so we're separated for a time. Now, I don't mean to make light of it or trivialise it. The separation is painful. Of course it's painful, especially for his wife and children. But we know it's a temporary separation. So Christopher is totally healthy, and he's in a place now that he would not want to leave and waiting for us to join him. And so that knowledge was like a, uh, gave us an inner strength, the knowledge of God's presence with us, very real. So we weren't walking this walk alone. As David, the psalmist said, "I walk through the valley of the shadow of death. He knows that his shepherd is with him. And Jesus was with us through the whole of that walk. And it was extraordinary watching the, the courage and faith that Christopher had through the whole of it. But I don't shake my fist at God and say, you know, why did you do this? How cruel are you? Because the mess we're in is not his making. It's the consequence of sin.
1: The big story going back to the beginning seems incredibly vital to understanding all of this and being able to respond to that question. If you can imagine for a second how would it have felt to go through I think you really did travel the valley of the shadow of death in many ways watching Christopher. How would you have imagined that could have been like if you hadn't had God's constant love and blessing and help and uplifting through those times? What would it have been like without
0: that? Look, it it would be uh, hard to imagine. I deeply feel for people who have no faith or no confidence, who believe that they are just the results of random natural processes. They're a fluke of the universe. And therefore, that death is just the end. It's just a dead end. It's a black hole. There's nothing beyond no hope. It must be extraordinarily difficult to deal with, uh, with such a thing. Um, I can't imagine it, actually. But this is the hope that the Christian has. This is why walking the Christian life is such a rich, positive, and joyful experience, mm. even in the valley of the shadow of death. Even yeah, mm.
1: it's amazing to hear a personal experience of God in those dark times. When we're talking about this all-powerful and all-loving God that that intervenes and and brings about miracles and and answers prayers, and another challenge for Christians might be people will say, how about the killing of different nations that God actually commanded in the Old Testament, this Old Testament, a God that seems to be a bit of a moral monster sometimes, how do we respond to that?
0: Yeah, that's a very good question. One that um, uh, often comes up as people try to to discredit the goodness of God. Mm. I guess there are a number of points to make. First of all, the instructions that God gave to Israel to uh, wipe out those nations were not general instructions to all believers they were very specific specific to a a particular people at a particular time and for a particular purpose context is really important here context is absolutely vital at a a, a point in history and remember it's not like the Israelites just rocked up and knocked on the door and said "Oi, get out we're moving in right (laughs) God waited 400 years for the sin of the Canaanites to reach its full fullness or its maturity if you like now only god can decide when a people group is irredeemable we can't make that judgment you remember abraham was called to occupy the land where he was but it was 400 years later before they actually made entry into that land so the canaanites could of course have repented now they knew that the israelites were coming you think about it, there's this group of people in the wilderness, and I'm talking about a couple of million people being miraculously provided for every day with the manna which came down mm-hmm. from heaven. Their clothes and their shoes are not wearing out. They have um, a tremendous amount of wealth. You know, when they left Egypt, they plundered Egypt. So imagine the traders traveling from Assyria to Egypt and to other parts of the then known world. They would uh, have come and traded with these people. They would know the story. They would see firsthand the incredible provision, the miraculous things. They would have known that these people were destined to occupy a God-given land. And Rahab, in fact, had faith. She knew what was going to happen. She knew that God's hand and purposes were on Israel. So she was saved. Anybody else could have been too. But the other Canaanites hardened their hearts and they resisted. So the only option was for them to be removed and wiped out. But it's interesting in the scriptures when you look at it, the language is more about dispossessing the people than it is about destroying them. So God's heart was to destroy the Canaanite religion, which, by the way, included child sacrifice, bestiality, and Horrific stuff. It's just the extent of their evil. The extent of their evil. It it reached, um, I can't remember the exact phraseology, but essentially maturity. They were irredeemable as a people. Now let's come back again to the potter and the clay. God is sovereign in all of this. So it was not like they were, that God is some sort of a... um, Racial cleanser or... Yeah, yeah. He's Mm -hmm. not a mold monster, arbitrary decider that, um, okay, you're going to go to hell, bad luck. It's not like that. God's character of pure love is unmistakable in the person of Jesus. He made a sacrificial death for all of mankind. And the Bible says that God is not willing that any should perish, but that all should come to repentance. So God's heart is pure. And I believe that is evident for anyone really who would consider the evidence.
1: So God gives them a long time to repent.
0: And opportunity was there as well, mm-hmm. and Rahab is the example. So I don't think we can accuse God of being a moral monster by any means.
1: So Mark, hearing all of this, how would you say that God has addressed this problem of of natural and moral evil?
0: Yeah, that's a very good question. You see, God is not idle. He hasn't disengaged from uh, from his creation from us because of his great love for us i think god has done everything that it is possible for him to do now what i mean by that is that it is not possible for god to go against his own word and he created mankind in his image now that means a number of things but among which is that we are moral agents capable of making moral decisions. Mm -hmm. He created the world in a cause-effect relationship, not only physically, but also morally. So we will live with the consequences of our moral decisions in the same way that um, in physics, an action will produce a certain reaction dependent upon the appropriate laws of physics. But what God has done is that he has taken on himself all of the rebellion of mankind and the consequences. And he did it by coming in human form in the person of Jesus. So he stepped into history at just the right time. Mm. And as a man, but also as the Son of God, and this is a very important point, it wasn't just the Son of God coming to earth, he was a man as the Son of God. Mm. So he walked what we walk. He experienced what we experienced as a man. And he laid down uh, an example for us, which is why in Hebrews he's referred to as our brother. Now if he was only the Son of God in a divine sense, Mm -hmm. uh, how could we equate ourselves with God? But he was a man perfectly filled with the Holy Spirit. So he was an example to us. So he came into this messy world he took on himself, even though he was sinless, all the sin of mankind. And it's interesting, you know, he hung on that cross, and darkness came onto the the face of the earth for three hours, deep darkness. And I sometimes wonder, you know, in various passages of the Old Testament, it describes how how God is in the darkness; His presence is there. And then the darkness lifts, and Jesus cries out, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Mm -hmm. In that time, the whole transaction was taking place. He was carrying the burden, the consequence, the suffering, everything for us. Mm -hmm. The Bible says that by his stripes, we are healed. So in his body, he bore our infirmities and sicknesses and diseases. So, not only did he bear our diseases and infirmities, but his shed blood paid the price for our sins. And the Bible says that without the shedding of blood, there is no forgiveness of sins. Mm. Interestingly, the first record of the shedding of blood was that God provided animal skins to cover Adam and Eve's nakedness, mm. which they realized when they had rebelled against God. Mm. Until then, they no imperfect in innocence. So, the shedding of blood was vital. So, Jesus took it all unto himself. then, of course, he rose from the dead. So he conquers death. He establishes that he is indeed the Son of God, and he is now at the right hand of God the Father, interceding for each and every one of us. But Mm -hmm. it's not only that, because Jesus has promised that he will return again, and he will usher in the close of this age. So this rotting, decaying world that we are a part of and that we suffer in, is going to be replaced with a new heavens and a new earth. And it's going to be so much better than what we have today. It will never decay. It will never rot again. There will be no possibility of sin. Somebody um, summed it up very well, one of the church fathers, who said it was possible for Adam not to sin. He didn't have to sin. It is not possible for us not to sin because we live in this broken world but then it will be impossible to sin in the new heavens and the new earth so god has done everything that it's possible for him to do without violating his having made us in his image so he's taken it all on himself so that we get to go free we get to have a resurrection body Now, you're young, but when you get to my age, you look forward to having a new body. <laughs> and it is a glorious hope that yeah. the Christian has for the future.
1: So when someone says, well, what does God do about this? I, I know some of my students will say that. Why, why did he do something? Well, he has. Exactly. And he's still going to.
0: That's right. That's right. And that's the hope mm. that the gospel message has mm. for this struggling, suffering, dying world.
1: Wow. So if someone said to you, Mark, actually, I want to know this God personally, what would you say
0: to them? I would say that we need to obey what Jesus has said, which was repent and believe. We need to turn away from our previous way of thinking and our sinful, unbelieving life. You know, the Bible says in Romans Chapter 10, if we confess with our mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in our hearts that God raised him from the dead, we will be saved. That means we'll be rescued, rescued from a Christless eternity and we'll be able to come into relationship with him. See, we were made for relationship. So the moment an unbeliever repents and believes That moment is when God places his own Holy Spirit in the life of that person, into their heart. It's called being born again. They're renewed. The old is gone and the new has come. They're a new creation. And, uh, you know, the presence of the Holy Spirit in the heart of a believer is a deposit that guarantees their inheritance for all of eternity. You know, once you're born, you can't be unborn. So we have a guarantee of our future destiny. It's even better than that because with the indwelling presence of the Holy Spirit, we can walk and talk in relationship with our Creator God. And that's the daily walk, the walk that Jesus patterned. You know, he said, I only say what I hear my Father say. I only do what I see my Father do. How did the man Jesus do that? Well, because of the perfect filling of the Holy Spirit in his heart. That's how we knew what the Father was saying and what the Father was doing. And that is available to every Christian. And what an amazing gift it is. And it's a free gift. Nothing to do with whether, you know, we've done, like, got 51% and passed. You know? It's nothing to do with our efforts. It's impossible for mankind to make ourselves acceptable for God. It's an act of faith. And, you know, the faith we exercise, God even gives gives to us. Isn't it amazing? So our salvation is by grace through faith, and that faith is a gift from God so that no one can boast. But it's an offer that's free and it's available to every single human being.
1: An incredible freedom in not thinking, I have to earn, I have to do all these things
0: Yeah, to earn. The release Mm. is amazing. That's right. So many other religions are all about jumping through hoops and rituals that you have to observe mm. and, you know, it's a burden and it doesn't work anyway. Mm.
1: When I meet people with other faiths, it's, it's almost inconceivable that we could believe something that means that we, we don't have to earn it. We don't have to keep working, 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 working. We can actually receive.
0: That's right. And, and this is why the gospel message is often, it's a stumbling block. Paul says it's, a, uh, it's foolishness to the Greeks and a stumbling block to the Jews because it's foolish to mm. arrogant man that you mean I do nothing, I just receive, you know? Mm. And it's humbling because we want to do things to make ourselves like God. You know, that was the original temptation. The enemy said to Eve, you know, if you eat of this fruit, you will be like God. So they thought oh god must be withholding something from us mm. if we eat this fruit we'll be like him mm. so they wanted to exalt themselves so our nature is to want to exalt ourselves so to humbly accept god's free gift of salvation mm. that's a big hurdle mm. because it requires us to humble ourselves mm. so in humility we come to him and we say lord i repent Believe in what you have done for me, as it says in Romans. Mm. Um, I believe in my heart that you raised, that you were raised from the dead, mm. and I confess you as my Lord. Mm. And, and God's faithful.
1: I was just going to say, my students would say, but what if I don't know if I completely believe? But I might want to know what this personal relationship could be like. What what could I say to them? It's okay that <laughs> you might not feel like you completely know yet, but
0: what can you yeah, do? Yeah, you know, I'd, I'd say two things. There was a man who came to Jesus with a son who needed healing. Jesus said, do you believe? He said, yes, I do. Help my unbelief. He had a belief, but wasn't the whole way there. He was struggling, you know, and we're all like that. There are parts of things, well, gee, I don't know. I'm not sure I can really believe that. So firstly, Lord, help us in areas where we don't believe. But the other thing I'd say is God makes an amazing promise. Now you think about this, the creator of the universe promises each and every one of us this thing, and that is, if you seek me with all your heart, mm. you will find me. Isn't that incredible? The God of the universe, who spoke it into being in six days, will reveal himself to you if you seek him with all your heart. Mm. Now that doesn't mean, mm. oh God, what are you going to do? Yeah. You know? How about three o'clock tomorrow afternoon when I'm not busy? You know, I mean, you can't approach that with an arrogant heart; that you can only come with humility and sincerely seek God. But that's the promise: He will reveal Himself to you.
1: May people trust that promise. Amen. (laughs) Mark, thank you so much for talking about this with us today. It's it's a big question, probably on most people's hearts: Um, Christians, non Christians, all sorts of faiths. Well, God, if He's out there. If he's good, then why do we see the things that we see that are so broken, heartbreaking, painful? And and thank you for helping us look at how um, when we step out of the middle of the story, we can actually see the bigger picture of what God has done from the beginning. And we have answers to that really hard question. Amen. Thank you for sharing your knowledge of scripture and bringing some of these things to light so that we can stand firm on God's word. And if you haven't subscribed already, then please do, you can hear more content like this.